0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberde, and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books Podcast, in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today it's an enormous privilege for me to welcome Professor Joyce Carol Oates, one of America's greatest living writers, to Books, Books, Books. Joyce and I will be discussing her latest and incredibly 59th novel, Night, Sleep, Death, The Stars, which is published here in Australia by HarperCollins. Joyce Carol Oates has, since 1964, published over 100 books, including novels, plays, short stories, essays, poetry, and literary criticism. She's the author of many best-selling novels, including We Were the Mulvaneys, Carthage, and A Book of American Martyrs. Joyce taught at Princeton University from 1978 to 2014, and she is the Distinguished Professor of the Humanities there. She has won over 27 awards in the United States and internationally, far too many to name here, but I'll just uh, mention a few. The National Humanities Medal for her contributions to American letters, that was presented by President Obama in 2011, the National Book Critics Circle Lifetime Achievement Award, and this year, the Cino de Luca World Prize, France's richest literary award, which recognises an author whose work constitutes, in a scientific or literary form, a message of modern humanism. Joyce has her own scholarly journal named after her called Bearing Witness, Joyce Carol Oates' Studies, and an academic colleague once said this about her, that she has produced an extraordinary body of work one that rivals those of the 19th-century greats like Balzac and Dickens in its extent, and demands comparison with them in depth, range, and power. Joyce, welcome to Books, 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 and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you if you just would like to tell us what the book is about, and then if you could read the uh, the short extract.
1: Yes, well, the the novel, like most novels, has many different uh, tributaries that sort of flow into it. I think of novel as an immense river, a river of stories, and like a river, it has numerous tributaries that come into it. So the most obvious story that I'm telling is a story of grieving and how one deals with the, the shocking anguish of losing a loved one somewhat unexpectedly and how one has to find a way to live, to survive beyond that. Most of it is from the point of view of the widow, but I I didn't want to write only about the widow, which is my own experience. I wrote a memoir called The Widow's Story. I wanted to write about the grieving of an entire family of five children who are adults, because people grieve in different ways, and sometimes they don't even know that they're grieving. Their lives start to shudder and shiver and and fall apart in ways that they, they may not even recognize. But at the same time, I wanted to write about, as I usually do in a long novel, the political situation in America, which maybe replicates in some ways a political situation globally, where we have um, profound distrust of the institutions, the government, and where we are not certain who's telling the truth. The focus in the novel is on police brutality, the brutality which is really historic in the United States. It's been going on for forever. Uh, white white law enforcement against persons of colour, usually. So all these elements go into the novel.
0: Joyce, it's quite extraordinary. You, you wrote the book last year, but in an example of uh, life replicating art, of course, the encounter that you write about in this book that triggers the, the death of the patriarch is just such an instant incident of police brutality involving racism. Would you like to start by uh, reading from the opening?
1: I will, but i just say that I have been writing about American politics and, and the difficulty, the racial tension and ongoing drama. Perhaps it's a tragedy, but it's ongoing, and we're always trying to deal with it, in America for decades. So mm-hmm. this novel... While it's very timely, the most unusual thing about this novel is that the police brutality is enacted against a well-to-do white man Mm. from a family that never had to think about the possibility of police brutality. Because in this country, it's so focused on disenfranchised people, persons of color, homeless people, mentally ill people. If you're of a certain economic level, you're you're kind of uh, oblivious of this. Mm. So that, that was the unusual thing about this novel. Mm. And also to write about persons who are well-to-do rather than, as I, I often write about people who are from the working class or they have economic stress in their lives. These people are very well-to-do. But, you know, being well-to-do doesn't make grief any easier. Prologue why because he'd seen something he had reason to believe was wrong and it was within his power or at any rate it was his moral obligation to rectify it or to make that effort where returning home on the Hennecott expressway at approximately 315 of that day just beyond the grimy and graffiti defaced overpass at pitcairn boulevard where in the early 1970s a 10-foot chain-link fence had been erected when high school-age youths had thrown heavy rocks down upon motorists bound for the northern suburbs. From where? A luncheon meeting of the trustees of the Hammond Township Public Library at the downtown Central Library, which John Earl McLaren, at that time mayor of Hammond, New York, had helped to rebuild in the mid-1990s with a capital campaign of several million dollars. Since then, John Earl Whitey had not missed a meeting of the trustees in 15 years. Driving his vehicle, a new model Toyota Highlander, in the right lane of the three-lane highway at a speed neither above nor below the 55-mile-per-hour limit. This caution in the light of his having consumed just one glass of wine at the luncheon, though John Earl did not seriously believe that he was driving under the influence of alcohol or that his driving, perceived by any neutral observer, might be so interpreted. Seeing then, just before the exit at Meridian Parkway, which would have had him home safely in the house on Old Farm Road, in which he lived so happily with his dear wife for most of his adult life within 20 minutes. A Hammond police cruiser parked at the side of the road with its red lights flashing and another vehicle parked close by, two uniformed police officers, officers pulling a young, male, dark-skinned individual from his car, shouting into his face and slamming him repeatedly against the hood of the car. Slowing his vehicle to get a better look and shocked at what he seemed to be seeing, now braking, daring to stop just beyond the police cruiser, John Earl climbed out of his vehicle to approach the officers who were continuing their manhandling of the dark-skinned young man. Though it was clear to John Earl that the young man was not resisting them unless you called trying to shield his face and head from their blows resisting boldly calling out, stop, officers, what are you doing? Brazen, seeming fearless, summoning something of his old mayoral authority in this new century. In this uncharted place, a scrubby inner city hammond in which a stricter and harsher police presence prevailed, little known even to white citizens as knowledgeable as John Earl McLaren. And there followed an excited exchange which John Earl would not recall afterward, as he would but vaguely recall that the dark-skinned man was of slender build, very frightened, not an African-American, but seemingly a young Indian, in a suit, white shirt, torn and bloody, splattered, white wire-rimmed glasses knocked from his face. So that's the very beginning of the novel, and this action, which is either courageous or foolhardy, depending upon how you want to judge it, is a precipitating factor for the whole novel.
0: So what happens when he stops to try to assist this man and to tell the police to stop beating him, essentially? How do they respond to that, Joyce?
1: Well, just as they probably would if, anyone, if any one of us dared to do that, they turned on him and they, they beat him and tased, they tasered him in his chest, so he basically is uh, from this point onward in the novel, he's incapacitated. He really never he never regains his health again. Uh, I mean, I won't go into the plot, but by doing making this gesture which he felt was more morally obligatory, he basically precipitates the tragedy of the novel.
0: Joyce, you've long written about social injustice of one kind or another, but in in the relation to this particular novel, it was an unpleasant encounter that you yourself had with a policeman which prompted you to want to write about police brutality. Could you tell us what happened to you?
1: Well, I've actually had more than one unpleasant experience. Um, I'll start with the one that happened first. I was... um, You know, as a writer, I was invited into New York City to give a reading or a lecture, perhaps at a university. So I was, um, I was in a a limousine, and coming back in New Jersey at about maybe 10 p.m. at night, I was being driven by a a wonderful um, limousine driver who happened to be an African American man, and he had a you know uniform, and he was driving very well, and the car was quite solid and it was a very very I mean it's a very stately car so we were on the new jersey turnpike and two state police uh, state troopers pulled him over they saw that he was a black man obviously and for about about an hour they were harassing him they took him out of the car they asked they shouted at him and asked him the same things over and over again show your id let me see your license your, your New Jersey license and car registration. It was so shocking, like something on television, like something in a really bad movie. You know, the, the white officers harassing this black man. They ignored me. And they took him out on a highway shoulder. And I really think if he hadn't been very careful and docile and polite, I really think they would have injured him. They could possibly have killed him. And he hadn't really, he hadn't done anything wrong. That mm-hmm. I think they always can find something. They can always say, "Well, you were weaving, or you changed lanes." Mm-hmm. It's very hard to disprove the police. So I called my husband at that time, and I reported this to him. I said, "I don't know when I'll get home. They're just harassing this man." Finally, they gave up, and I mean, finally, they just took mer- had mercy on him, maybe, or I don't know. They let him go. Mm-hmm. So we just drove home and. It was so awful to be a white person and to know that a person of color had been so terribly uh, harassed just because of the color of his skin. So that that was very upsetting to me. It stayed with me for a long time. So I don't have to go into any other examples of, I had one or two other examples of police misconduct, as it's called.
0: Joyce? It's a big book, and there's so much we could talk about, but I'd like to narrow it down to four topics, if that's okay. Let's talk a little bit about this family, the two adults, Whitey, as he's known because of his white hair, and his wife of 40 years, Jessalyn. Whitey's 67, Jessalyn's 61, and they've got uh, five adult children. So let's start, first of all, with Whitey. He's clearly the patriarch, and we see him really mainly through the eyes of his family. That's how we learn what kind of a man he is. We can see that he's very much larger than life. What do we know about him and his background? And what kind of a husband is he to Jessalyn?
1: Well, those are very good questions. I was trying to present a really a realistic family with a lot of uh, nuances, you know, and, and details, and even contradictions in a personality. Uh, Whitey is a certain kind of. Man, I think we all know someone like this. He is so, so devoted to his family. He's He has such a strong sense of, um, I guess you could call it, patriarchal responsibility. He takes over a company, a business that was failing that his own father had had, and he, he works very hard to make it successful, and he wants his son to take it over. He's working with his son. He's somebody who's extremely... Um, sensitive to any kind of criticism. Really, the only person in the world he trusts and loves without any qualification is his wife. Mm. And she is the sort of woman who is utterly devoted to her husband. She can see that he's difficult. She sees lots of flaws in him. And some of his flaws are just funny. He's, He's vain. He can be a little silly but he's such a wonderful husband and father, he he acknowledges privately that he couldn't live without her. Mm-hmm. It's often in a case with a very strong patriarchal husband that the wife is really emotionally supporting him, and all that he's doing sort of relates back to her. And if he lost her, he would be utterly unmoored. So she's able to keep going after he passes away because she is strong, though she misses him terribly.
0: So let's talk a little bit about her. There's a lovely, um, lovely description of her where you say she's the still point in the McLaren family about whom the others revolved. You've talked a little bit there about her relationship with Whitey. What's she like as a mother? What's her relationship like with her five children?
1: Well, we learn later on in the novel that Jessalyn maybe would have liked to have been a teacher. She might have liked to have done something else. But she fell in love with Whitey, and she became his wife, and she was not going to have a career. He really needed her to be the wife at home and the mother, and they're fairly well-to-do people. So they had a certain position in society, though they didn't spend money lavishly, and they didn't belong to a country club, but they had a fair, a fair amount of money. She was devoted to her children. At the same time, as she gets older, she can see that the children, in some cases, are difficult or they're spoiled or they're not perfect. She and her husband represented the kind of ideal parents, though, that make it difficult for some children to grow up and leave home. Mm. That is, they were, they were very loved at home. They always knew they were totally loved by their mother. And then when they get a little older and go to college or get married, and move away, their lives are never quite so meaningful to them as they were when they were beloved of their mother at home.
0: And there's almost an irony there when you uh, talk about the children and how they deal with the, the transition into adult life. And one of them, Sophia, we'll come to her in a moment, almost she says at one stage to somebody that she's with that her life's never been as happy as it was during those childhood years, and that the, it's almost been difficult. The happier your childhood, the more difficult it is adjust, to adjust or transition to adult life. I thought that was, that was really interesting. Let's start with the kids. In I'm sorry, Joyce.
1: Well, it really, it really is so true that also some husbands and wives are so truly devoted to each other that they represent a certain model for marriage that the younger people probably can't attain. You know, you probably, you're probably not going to marry a man who adores you quite the way Whitey adored the mother, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. We're we're in a different era also. So it's kind of ironic to have a really happy family life. And I did want... Not that they're always happy. I mean, they squabble and they have all lots of problems. But overall, they're such a unified family and they really love one another. It's difficult to move on into your own flawed life. So let's talk a bit
0: about each of the five children. Let's start with Tom. We'll go in uh, descending order. Tom is almost 40. He's the heir, his father's heir at the printing business. What's he like and how does he get on with his siblings?
1: Well, Tom is the firstborn, and so he'd always have a tremendous amount of responsibility. As it is, he's tall, he's attractive, he's very smart. He doesn't really have any choice he has to take over with his father in the business. He would like very much to do something else, but he can't can't walk away from it. It's his responsibility. After the father's death, and I hope I'm not giving him too much of the plot, he finds out that the police really caused the death, and he is so upset and so angry. He wants to initiate a lawsuit. He wants the police officers to be brought to justice. And so much of the novel is taken up with his, his growing frustration and his feeling of loyalty for his father. At the same time, now that his father has gone from his life, a lot of the meaning has drained out of his life.
0: Let's talk about Beverly, the oldest daughter she's thirty six. Tell us a bit about her Joyce
1: Beverly is the most conventional of the of the siblings. She got married soon after a college i guess she she was quite young, probably in her early twenties when she got married. she was pregnant and she got married fairly quickly and she's become a, a wife and mother she's Somewhat jealous of her younger sisters who both have careers. And she feels edgy and and envious of women who are maybe not so defined by husband and children. So she sort of emulates her mother, but she feels also that she doesn't have a husband who loves her the way her father loved her mother. She understands that her husband is maybe sexually restless and maybe bored with her. And so she's very frustrated about that. We also see in the opening scene, she's
0: the first of the siblings that we've really seen, that she's got quite a hard heart, or at least she does in relation to her brother Virgil, who we'll come to talk about in a moment. In that opening scene, which I think was very powerful, we see her hiding. She sees that Virgil's coming to ring the doorbell. She knows that he doesn't visit very often. So you would think she she would know that it must be important. But we see her hiding from him because she doesn't want to see him. What does that tell us about her and her relationship with Virgil, who we'll come to discuss in a moment?
1: Well, as I said, she's sort of, she's sort of jealous about her siblings. She feels that the father and perhaps the mother love them or cherish them in ways that they don't Her She feels very taken for granted. Her children are teenage children, and they're kind of mean and sarcastic to her. Not that they don't love her, but the the kind of children who say, oh, mom, oh, mom, come on. And then her husband is, is sort of interested in younger women. Her Her younger brother, Virgil, is an artist and a sculptor, and he never graduated from college. He doesn't really have a full-time job. He's somebody whom... Their mother has always loved. And the mother loves all the children without qualification. So if you're a child who feels that she's been a very good child, you sort of resent a sibling who hasn't quite done as much as you have.
0: Let's talk now about Lorraine. She's 34. At one point, she's described as witty and sardonic. And she is a school principal. What's Lorraine like? And how does she get on with Bev? What's their relationship like?
1: I had the most fun writing about Lorraine. She is so awful. She behaves in a way that is astonishing, but she does everything in secret. She's very, very paranoid about her, the the teachers in in her school. She's the principal, so she's hired a lot of them. But she feels that her authority can't be questioned. She's extremely defensive and sensitive. And now that her father has died, he was the one who really admired her. He always thought she was the smartest of all the children. He liked that she was a high school principal at a relatively young age. So his admiration for her was something that kept her going. She's not married, and she doesn't have a, a man friend. She doesn't have a love interest. She doesn't even even have very many any friends. So now that the father's gone, she's just been knocked sort of knocked off, off balance. And you say about her at one stage that she
0: felt like an only child as she was growing up, that she identified so much with her parents and that she saw herself as the smartest and she, she really thought of herself as her father's favourite and that's a big part of her identity as well. Yes. Let's talk now a little bit about Virgil. You you mentioned him before. So he's 31 and he's like this beautiful bohemian dreamer really isn't he as a child he was very dreamy he composed poetry and music and he never understood and this is a very very sad strain of the book I think he never understood why his father and his older brother didn't like him he had a very troubled relationship didn't he with Whitey so we've talked about him as being such a great father but he's not a great father to Virgil at all what's he like with Virgil as a father
1: well, the father is made uneasy by Virgil because Virgil doesn't play the role of what you would call a, a masculine person. He's not eager to get married. He doesn't seem to have any women friends. He's probably what we call, it's, this is an awful word, but effeminate. Uh, Whitey would see in him this uneasiness of some heterosexual males for a male who might be, who might be gay now the the idea that Virgil is really a gay man or a bisexual that can never be articulated as long as whitey's alive nobody even nobody wants to think it, including Virgil, because it would be so incredibly horrible to this old fashioned patriarch that that one of his sons is gay uh nobody wants to acknowledge that. However, after Whitey passes away, Virgil realizes. His father's gone, and he can express himself now. So he finally, beyond the age of 30, he sort of comes out mm. and acknowledges that he probably is gay, and he he falls in love with, with a young man. And all that is totally um, life. It's an upheaval of his life. So I like to think that the, I think there's a Jewish... Jewish saying, a door closes, another door opens, that sometimes when we lose someone in our lives who've meant so much to us, nonetheless, in a little while, somebody else will come along, and you may, you may have a new life that you never anticipated.
0: Joyce, I'd like to come back to something you, you mentioned before. The first three that we've talked about, the three elder siblings, Tom, Beverly, and Lorraine, We really see them at their worst, I think, in relation to their dealings with Virgil. Certainly to start with, we see them later on in a pretty poor light as well. Um, They are, it seems to me, three very unlikable characters. And I wondered how much fun you did have writing all of those three and the, the machinations between them.
1: Well, I don't have unlikable characters to myself. I'm sympathetic with all of them. Uh, a, a character or person who behaves badly, who's jealous or mean-spirited, probably hasn't chosen to be that way. It's probably something that has happened. Like Lauren, at the by the end of the novel, mm. she really sees how badly she's behaved. Mm. And uh, like with all, many people who've lost a parent, they continue their relationship with a lost father even after he has died. So in dreams or daydreaming or just sitting looking out the window, we could still we could still summon back our parents whom we've lost. We can almost have conversations with them. And she almost does have that experience. And it's her father who really nudges her into understanding that she's ruining her own life. Mm-hmm. She's consumed with bitterness and unhappiness. And she'd better Open her eyes before it's too late. So she does actually change later mm. in the novel.
0: Mm. She goes through an epiphany of sorts, doesn't she? After she does. those conversations with her father,
1: and she, but she's also seeing a therapist, yes. which was smart. a very, a very sharp therapist with a sense of humor who understands her and sees right through her. And she's embarrassed. She's embarrassed about that,
0: and it's almost as if that's something you have a sense that she could never have done that while her father was alive because. He hated any sign of weakness, and she's like that. She does as well. She's almost ashamed to be seeing this therapist, and she's very concerned that none of the siblings should find out about it because she's embarrassed about it. But you do sense that if the father was still alive, she wouldn't. She wouldn't have got herself to that point of seeing a therapist.
1: And sometimes it's just so important for us to be embarrassed and be humbled, and just sort of admit that we can't do it on our own. And sometimes there comes along somebody in our lives who really helps us because the therapist has a sense of humor. She sees that Loren is is so difficult, but she likes her. I mean, I have friends who are difficult, but I like them. And the characters in my novels who are maybe difficult to get along with, they have their charm, a kind of a raffish charm. You know, they're so awful in some cases that they're actually funny.
0: Finally, the last character who is very, very, appealing and lovely, described at one point as an earnest schoolgirl, Sophia. She's 28, and she's a lab assistant. So she's the youngest child, their third daughter. What's she like, Joyce, and what's her relationship like with her parents?
1: Well, Sophia is somebody with whom I identify quite a bit. A lot of her personality is a bit like mine. Of course, I'm not a research scientist, but she wanted to please her father too, and she was a very, very good student. She did very well in school, very, very high grades. And now she's working for a fairly high-level research project. And she falls in love with an older man who is the principal investigator for the project, a well-known scientist. And she probably is falling in love with this man because she misses her father so much. Again, and the novel continues. She works her way through that, and she's not so dependent upon him. But her personality is a, a little like my own, quiet and uh, self-effacing, not like, a, not like Lorraine or Beverly. And I do
0: feel a little, as I say, that Virgil's a bit of a touchstone in the novel for how the different characters treat him. And she's very kind to Virgil and she sticks up for him. She defends him against the older brother, Tom, and the two sisters, Beverly and Lorraine.
1: Well, I think if you were in a family and Virgil was in the family, you would find him annoying. He's the sibling who doesn't show up. Everybody else is is there for the father's birthday or the mother's birthday or Christmas. He just doesn't show up and he doesn't apologize or he comes like 10 hours late, you know, but everybody, but the mother forgives him and the mother is lending him or even giving him money secretly. I mean, I think when you're in a family, it's almost natural to be jealous or resentful of somebody who's treated so much with so much uh, generosity So <laughs> you feel that I've been a good, I have been a good girl at Beverly thinks yeah. I'm the one who takes care of my mother and I, I have have her to dinner and Virgil does nothing, but, but she seems to love Virgil more. And there's talk, and that's
0: a, a point of friction between Jessalyn and Whitey, that he says to her at one point, you, you've enabled him. He's using this new language. You've <laughs> enabled him. And then there's a very funny part, I think, where Whitey, we have we see Whitey thinking that the reason there's so many problems with Virgil is that he's called Virgil. And if he'd been called Matthew, he probably wouldn't have had these sorts of problems. But Whitey's given into to Jessalyn and allowed him to be called Virgil, and then Whitey really... Um, regrets that and thinks that if he'd had a more conventional name, he might've been a more conventional person.
1: Yeah. Like Tom. Yeah. His old son, Tom. Well, another thing that happens in a novel is the, all the, each child sort of thinks that he or she deserves more, more of an inheritance than the others. Like Beverly thinks she deserves more. Lorraine is a career woman. She deserves more. Tom. Um, they all think that they deserve more than the others. But then what Whitey does was a loving father, he leaves them all the same amount of money. So Virgil now is stunned. He had assumed his father wouldn't leave him anything. But when it comes down to it, his father did love him. His father was exasperated with him. But he never never stopped loving him. And I think that's true in many families. The love is just very strong, but there can be criticism and disappointment. But yet in the long run, the the parents love them.
0: Let's talk now about grief and the impact of grief upon the family unit as a whole and on the individual members of the family. And I want to talk specifically about Jessalyn, the widow. We mentioned that Lorraine started seeing a therapist and at one point she says to her therapist, Dr. Foote, it's been a nightmare since daddy died. The family is broken into pieces like the Big Bang flying away from each other, flying away from one another at the speed of light. And that's really what happens, isn't it? It's almost there's a sense that that with some of the children, losing their father almost brings out the worst in them, brings out very unattractive aspects of their personality. But some of the younger ones with Virgil and Sophia, it is liberating in a way. You mentioned with Virgil that he's he's able to um, come out as homosexual So let's talk a little bit about that, the impact on the children of the loss of their father.
1: Yes, I I think that the um, surprise when when you're an older person, meaning not a child, when when you lose your parents, you experience changes in your own personality that you wouldn't have thought would happen because you feel you're an adult. And so these adult children, or three of them anyway, not, not all of them, but three of them, they are so upset when their mother doesn't behave in a way they think she should be. Like Beverly thinks, well, why isn't my mother over here being a grandmother to her grandchildren? And why isn't she babysitting and, you know, and doing these things that I think she should do? And then when Jessalyn begins to see a man, they are horrified. They think it's obscene and they, they can hardly deal with the fact that their mother might have emotions, and my mother might have some human wish to, for, for human intimacy. You know, even though her husband died and she loved him tremendously, as the months go by, she's lonely and she, she needs other company. So the older children go into a panic. They're terrified that their mother will suddenly get married again. And I think this is something that's very general in situations like this. I don't think it's unnatural for the children to be so upset. And in my novel, it's somewhat comic. They start really, really uh, hmm. conspiring with one another on the telephone. And they're so upset about their mother. But when we look at Jessa, Jessalyn, we see that she's she's surviving she's living one day at a time and she doesn't have to live up to what her children think she should be doing
0: so you paint a very very vivid picture picture I know, I know you've written about a widow's grief before in in a memoir this book as well is a it's a very um, strong portrayal of the weight of grief and the weight that a widow bears you talk about it you talk about the widow in the third person in a way that It almost makes it seem that this is how she's looking at herself in a detached way. You talk about her life being a leftover life or a ridiculous life. The widow's condition was a diminishment. How does Jessalyn first feel and how does she first deal with that overwhelming grief?
1: Well, when you lose lose a husband with whom you're very, very close and so closely identified, it's a little bit like being run over by um, (laughs) a bulldozer or something. You you almost can't process any emotions. You're so you're really very tired. I think physical exhaustion very difficultly. for you can't really sleep, but you somehow don't have any energy, and you can't you can't get up out of bed even though you're not sleeping. It's very comp. I mean, it's not complicated at all. It's just some sort of a, like an illness. So. There are many things that one can say about it. I assume that anyone who's listening to this has had the experience and that it's a very human experience. If you live through it, you look back upon it, and you can see that you were probably physically ill or you might have had a mental collapse. So you just have to somehow keep going. Jessalyn feels very lost. She's in the house alone. She, all her children are growing up. They offer to come back and live with her, but that's not good. She doesn't really want that either. But she communicates with her lost husband all the time. She stays in the same house. She's in the same bed. She's reading the books he had. She goes through his clothes closet. I mean, she she honors and respects him even though he's gone. He's still emotionally involved in her life. And then Joyce
0: there's a turning point for her where at one point, I think it's by about June the following year, about eight months later, she suddenly starts to feel better. She goes back to doing some of the volunteering work that she's done. She feels better and happier in herself. And at this point, a cat enters her life. Could you tell us a little bit about that cat?
1: Oh, I think grief comes in waves and goes in waves. And so you do have a time when you feel suddenly better, but that actually doesn't last, and you can have a real relapse. But anyway, Jessalyn is in this house, which is basically the house I'm in right now, and I'm all alone in this house. Uh one day a, a feral tom cat comes to the <laughs> comes to the back door, and the cat is uh a mangy cat missing one eye, and he's a very rough cat. He's not a loving, tender pussy cat that people would like to pet, he's actually difficult. So he's sort of like a residue of a whitey whom she has lost and just the wildness of, of grief. So instead of chasing the cat away, Jessalyn feeds him, and she even co- lets him come into the house. And he's a bossy cat, and he will even nip her and scratch her a little if she doesn't feed him quite right and so she's sort of allowing this wildness to come into her life because it's the next thing that's happening to her when she takes the cat to the vet the vet says well why don't we can just put this cat down and give you a nice cat a kitten and justin thinks but i don't want a nice cat i want the cat who came to my back door
0: so that's a nice segue into hugo who you've mentioned before. We won't talk too much about what happens between them, but she meets a man called Hugo. What's he like? What sort of a person is he? What do we know about him?
1: Hugo is a person who is a little mysterious to us at first, and we got to know him a little bit, and we find out that he too has a, has a loss in his life. His, his son has died. He doesn't talk about himself much at all. He's a photographer, and he's very active in an organization that, that I'm, I'm active in. It's called the Centurion Ministry in the United States, and it's a, it's a, a charitable organization that provides money for the defense and the um, examination of individuals wrongly incarcerated. Most of them are persons of color. Most of them are black men. Some of them have been sentenced to death. And many of them have been sentenced to life in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And so it costs on the average over $300,000 to investigate. Um, The Santorian Ministry hires lawyers to look into these cases. I mean, I won't go into the details, but Hugo is active in that organization, which is based on my own um, activity with this organization, a wonderful organization
0: and what does hugo look like what's his what's his ethnic background and we'll come to why that's important
1: hugo looks just like somebody whom i know he's very he's very proud of himself he's sort of as perfect pasture he's about 57 just a little bit younger than jesslyn he's hispanic though he was born in the united states he's an american citizen but of hispanic ancestry he's Um, like a 1960s rebel. He was anti-Vietnam War. He belongs to what you call a counterculture. He's he's not in the establishment. He has made a fair amount of money with his photography, however, so he's not poor. The McLaren children think that he's some sort of a fortune hunter Mm -hmm. because their mother has well-to-do, and they keep disparaging him, saying, oh, he's like the long like the lawn worker, the Mexican lawn worker, and, or who is this person? He's after our mother's money. They're very shocked and dismayed when they learn that he doesn't need any money. He's actually quite well to do
0: Joyce, how do the older children in particular react to Hugo and the role that he starts to play in their mother's life? And what do they think about him and about the possibility of her having some sort of relationship with him?
1: Well, the three older children are just horrified that their mother may have a man friend, that she's actually seeing somebody, that she's not staying home dissolved in grief every minute of her life. They, they just see her in this role as their mother who's a widow. They cannot grasp that she might have uh, yearnings and emotional uh, desires of her own. It's so typical, they get a telephone call from a neighbor who says very cattily, Your mother. Your mother's going out with the, the, the Mexican lawn worker, in other words, somebody not of her own class, and of course they're very upset by this. But I meant it. I also meant it to be somewhat funny. Mm. There are a lot of comic uh, conversations that the older sisters have. Well, in America, people get, can get along quite well until there's some clash of territory or some clash of of wills. In other words you would like Hugo very, very well if he stays in his own place. And he's a wonderful photographer. I mean, people would probably have liked Hugo very, very well. But then he's visiting the mother. He's taking her out. They're driving around together. They're out in a canoe together. He has overstepped this boundary. And so the racism that maybe didn't even seem to exist starts bubbling up. And we say this in the United States all the time. We had a a certain feeling about race in 2008. And then President Obama was elected, one of the very best presidents America's ever had, but a backlash set in because he was black. And it was as if the black people had been doing very well and the white people were, you know, self satisfied about it. But oh no, now he's gone too far, he's president. So there's this tremendous backlash which has gone on for years because of Obama being, a, being such a beloved president. He, he um, received more votes than any president in the history of the United States. And the whole Trump administration has been somehow in reaction to Obama. In other words, it's racism, but you wouldn't necessarily have known it was there if Obama had not been elected. And many of us who are liberals were just stunned. We thought that the election of Obama meant a real milestone, but it was a temporary milestone. And right now the United States is in these throes of a divided America, just riddled with racism. And it's so shocking and demoralizing to those of us who are Americans, who have been around for a while, I mean, I was around in the 1960s and 1970s. These, This fight for civil rights and for women's rights had already been fought, and we thought that we had won, but it wasn't like that. It was this backlash.
0: Joyce, one of the things that you talk about when you talk about, there's an essay that you wrote in which you talked about your credo for writing and the five different motives for writing, and one of them that I want to ask you about is the concept of bearing witness, you've said that one of the things that motivates you to write is social injustice, a desire to bear witness, to speak for the disenfranchised. Is that desire to bear witness one of the factors that motivated you to write in this book about police racism and police brutality?
1: Yes, I think that's one of the roles of most artists who are holding up a mirror to to society And I don't mean that we are moralistic or, you know, sermonizing, but just sort of holding up the mirror in which social injustice is reflected. I've often written about women and girls being mistreated because of uh, of misogyny and sexism. And in this novel and some other novels I've written about persons of color, and particularly women, also women, women of color, and how it's a constant struggle but as I said just a minute ago, we, some of us had thought that we had won many um, victories you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, and that racism and misogyny and sexism, we really thought we'd made a lot of progress. But now um, it, we've had such setbacks. We can only hope for the electorate coming back more strongly and progressively.
0: Joyce, in an interview that you did with the Paris Review in 1978 about your writing, you said something lovely about art and I'd like just to ask you about it. You said, I take seriously Flaubert's statement that we must love one another in our art as the mystics love one another in God. By honouring one another's creation, we honour something that deeply connects us all and goes beyond us. What did you mean by that?
1: Yes, I feel very strongly about that. I think artists communicate with the community that it's um, a social um, gesture, any art, any kind of artist, whether musician or visual artist or writer or poet or dancer or filmmaker. It's in the context of a society and that we're holding, as I said, sort of holding a mirror up to the society. We may be uh, presenting models of behavior. We may be presenting... Mistaken sorts of behavior. We may want to commemorate courageous behavior. There are many things that we are doing to suggest portraits of, of ethical ways of living. Young, young adult fiction and, and art for children, I think, is very imbued with that sense of an ethical mandate to sort of show young people how it's possible to live a good life even in the midst of a good deal of struggle.
0: Is that something that you plan to do, given the, the state of your country at the moment? Is that something that you feel that you can do, that you can keep writing and keep engaging and keep having a conversation with your readers?
1: Oh, yes, I think so. It's, it's, a, it's really unfortunate that the country is so divided. But in, 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 the, in the 19th century, the co- country was divided in the Civil War. And our great poet, Walt Whitman was writing and our other great poet, Emily Dickinson, were both writing and their, their work really has endured. Both Whitman and, Emer- and Emily Dickinson are just uh, like contemporaries. I've taught both of them recently. I taught a course at Princeton called The American Dream where we examine all aspects of the American Dream. and We spent a long time on Walt Whitman. So that's a good example of work that's very intense and, and uplifting and powerful that has outlived the divisions of, the era, of that era.
0: Joyce, the title of the book, of course, comes from a Walt Whitman poem called A Clear Midnight, which is also the epitaph to the book. I read that that was your favorite Walt Whitman poem. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's about and why you chose the line from that poem? as the title for your novel.
1: May I read, may I read the note? Please. Poem? Yeah, I'll read it. It's so short, it's so beautiful. This poem is the most succinct poem that Whitman ever wrote. He has long, long lines, very rhapsodic and really long poems, but A Clear Midnight is only about six lines long. A Clear Midnight. This is thy hour, O oh soul. Thy free flight into the wordless, away from books, away from art, the day erased, the lesson done, thee fully forth-emerging, silent gazing, pondering the themes thou lovest best, night, sleep, death, and the stars. In other words, the poet is addressing his own soul. He's all alone. It's midnight. He's not standing in front of a big audience. He's all alone, and he's thinking quietly about the meaning of life, his own solitary nature, and I just feel it reaches out so beautifully to all of us. Night, sleep, death, the stars. We all have to have the experiences that Jessalyn has. We, we all have to fall in love, and then we have to lose the person we love, and there's really no, no other way of living. That's what it means to be human.
0: Joyce, thank you so very much for talking to me here today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you about your wonderful book. I wish you all the very best of luck with it. I wish you the very best of luck with your country and with the problems that you're dealing with there. And uh, just I can't thank you enough for appearing today.
1: It was lovely to converse with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening
0: to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.